I'll be reading from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 11 from the New American Standard Version. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How are we going to know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you do not have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father who is abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on the account of the works themselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your words. Help us to see you. Help us to see in this passage uh, more of your glory so that we can worship you all week long. Help us to put aside the old ways and to walk in newness of life. Thank you for these words in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you guys know... Um, what the first generation Christians called the Christian movement. I heard somebody say it. Five times in the book of Acts, the community of Christ followers that was spreading like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire is referred to as the way. Even the Jews and Roman officials who persecuted the church uh, ended up adopting that name for the church, the way. The Greek word that's translated way simply means road or path, a, a way to get from one place to another. So how did the earliest believers arrive at that intriguing name for the Christian faith and, commu and Christian community? And what did it mean to them? <laughs> the way to what? The way to happiness, the way to peace, the way to heaven. Like uh, several others I know in this room, God brought me to faith in Jesus Christ in the early part of the 1970s. You know, back then, uh, the closest thing we had to mobile communication for most of us was walking in tight circles in our kitchen while uh, making our phone cord look like that. Also, I found this in, in my desk. I used to know how to use this back in the 70s. It, it's a slide rule. That was, do you, do you know that in my senior physics class, I got to see the very first TI calculator. It could add, subtract, multiply, divide, and do square roots. That was it. <laughs> so now you know how old I am. Back then, when I got saved, uh, there was a revival that moved mostly through the teenage and young adult 
component of the baby boomer generation, and it was called the Jesus Movement. And those, I see lots of heads nodding among the gray hairs. (laughs) And those of us who came to Christ in that movement were called Jesus freaks, whether we liked it or not. And that meant Jesus fanatics. I learned to embrace that, that name. We had a hand signal that all other Jesus freaks immediately recognized. It was, yeah, Sharon's got it. It was, it was a closed hand with the index finger pointed straight up. Nowadays, when you see that, it usually means something like we're number one. Or, or if it's a pro football player doing a dance in the end zone, it means I'm number one. But what did it mean back then to us Jesus freaks? It meant one way. One way. The absolute and uncompromising truth behind that hand signal came from this great and powerful passage. In John chapter 14, no more than a few hours before His arrest by the temple authorities, Jesus told His beloved disciples two things that they had to know in order to carry on as His agents in the world after His departure. First was the way to get to the eternal dwelling place of His Father. The way that He was preparing for them. And second was the way to personally know the God who lives there. But the most amazing thing, the most amazing thing that Jesus reveals in this passage (laughs) is that these 11 men already knew that way. They already knew. See, the real jaw-dropper in John 14, verses 1-11, through especially 4-11, through the unexpected reality that Jesus laid out for His disciples on this incomparably critical night was not how to get to God or how to know God. What really surprised the disciples and prompted them twice in this passage to challenge the words of Jesus was His assertion that they already knew the way. They already knew the way to the dwelling place of God and they already knew personally and intimately and truly the God that they would find when they got there. And they already knew both because they knew Jesus. My outline this morning has three main points. The first, and these are the reason I worded it this way, I recognize there may be unbelievers in this in this room to whom this wording does not apply. But I'm wording it this way because this was Jesus addressing His true disciples. And this is what He said to them. Because you know Jesus, you know the way to the Father. Secondly, because you know Jesus, you know the Father Himself. And then the last thing, the the real so what in this passage is you know... Now trust. Trust the one you know. First, because you know Jesus, you know the way to the Father. In verses 2 and 3 of John 14, Jesus had just told His disciples that He was going away to prepare a place for them. He would come back and receive them to Himself. They couldn't go there now, but they would later. And in that place, He would be with them. 
That marvelous promise is exceedingly personal, as we talked about last week. The point of the place that Jesus promised to prepare for those whom he had called to himself is the presence of the persons and the people. The three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the people of God dwelling together in that incomparable place forever. The point of the place is the presence of the persons and the people. How's that for enough peas? Now Jesus reveals the one and only way to get to that promised place. In verses 4 and 5, there's a very interesting three-step pattern in Jesus' interaction with his disciples that he then repeats in verses 7 to 10. So we're going to see this twice. First, the setup, then the challenge from his disciples, and finally, the declaration the declaration that puts that challenge to rest. The setup in verses 4 through 6 is found at the beginning of verse 4. Jesus makes a simple statement that once again leaves the disciples perplexed. Having just said he was going to prepare a place for them to dwell with them, he says, and you know the way where I am going. (laughs) Now, Peter, whom we normally would have expected to speak up first, right, was, I think he was sidelined because of what Jesus had said to him moments earlier. Jesus had just told Peter he was going to deny Jesus three times before dawn that next morning. So, throughout chapter 14, the other disciples seemed to be pinch-hitting for Peter, (laughs) And first up to the plate is Thomas. Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? See, he's saying, we don't know the place that you're talking about, so how could we possibly know how to get there? With the setup complete and the disciples' challenge out on the table, Jesus gives Thomas the answer to that challenge. It's an answer that their world then and our world now flatly does not want to hear. But it is a marvelous answer. It's God's answer. Jesus said in John 14.6 to His disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Me. This is the sixth of what I call the seven missional I am's of Jesus in the Gospel of John. There are several other I am's that just stand alone where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He's calling himself God. But these missional I am's tell us, each tell us something about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do when he was here the first time. The first is, I am the bread of life. Then I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. And now in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The final missional I am will be in the next chapter in John chapter 15. I am the true vine. Every word of John 14, verse 6 is exceedingly, exceedingly important. I am the way, 
the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Now, there are some really good sermons out there that you'll hear on verse 6 that devote as much time to the assertion of Jesus that he is the life and the truth, the truth and the life, as they devote to the assertion that he's the way. And that's fine, but everything about the immediate context of this great verse, including the second half of verse 6 itself, tells us that the focus of what Jesus is saying here is on the declaration, I am the way. He just talked about this place in his father's house that he's preparing for his disciples. He's going to come back and get them and take them there. And now he says, you know the way. And they say, no, we don't. And he says, yeah, you do. Because I am the way. I've heard two, really, two of my favorite sermons I heard this week made the point that I'm about to make to you about verse 6. One of them was R.C. Sproul, whom I love. And he said, because Jesus is the truth and the life, Jesus is the way. Because He's the truth and the life, He's the only way. I believe that's, that is spot on. When the Bible speaks of truth, it isn't talking about the, you know, the best method for replacing the broken screen on your iPhone as compared with other flawed methods. I tried both last week. It's talking about what's true of God and man and sin and righteousness and judgment and eternity and eternal life. Truth as the Bible defines it is truth that matters forever. The Bible doesn't talk about other things and call it truth. In the first chapter of this gospel, John declared that Jesus is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, who uniquely exegetes or explains God to man. The truth about God's character and God's ways has been put on perfect display in the person of Jesus Christ. In chapter 8, Jesus declared that He is the truth that sets men free. He said the truth will set you free. And then He said, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. So He's equating Himself with the truth. And Jesus is the life. In John 5, He declared that the Son, like the Father, has life in Himself and gives that life to whomever He wills. And he made it clear in that passage that he was talking about life that lasts forever. John 5.24, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me, in other words, believes my Father's testimony about me, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is already crossed over out of death into life. <laughs> what an amazing statement. See, the reality that Jesus is the embodiment, the very source and essence of both truth and life is the foundation upon which his declaration here in John 14, 6 depends. Because he is the truth and the life, he's the only way to the Father. Now, this is marvelous beyond measure. Jesus says to his disciples, 
you men already know the way to the Father. Then Thomas challenged that statement. We do not know the way, Lord. And Jesus answered his challenge by negating it. Oh, but you do. You of all people, you 11 men of all people, know the way to the Father. Because you know me. In my old school edition of the classic book, The Imitation of Christ, Thomas Akempis says, Without the way thou canst not go, without the truth thou canst not know, and without the life thou canst not live. To update that language a bit and expand it just a little, without the way there's no going to God, without the truth there's no knowing of God, and without the life there's just plain no life. Jesus is all of the above. He is our all in all. To go to the Father, to know the Father, to live the only life that's real, which is the life of relationship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit, every man and woman and child must do what Jesus told His disciples to do in the first verse of this chapter. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. See, this is a call to faith. Faith in Jesus as the one and only way that lost sinful human beings will ever come into the presence and dwelling place of our holy God. And it is a call to those who do trust Jesus, like these men did, to trust Him always. Even when you're struggling mightily to understand what He's doing, as they would struggle more than ever the next day. This way to God is exclusive of all others. The second half of verse 6 is as important as the first. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me. In 1 Peter 2, the Apostle Peter later identifies Jesus as the precious cornerstone of whom Isaiah the prophet spoke. The, the cornerstone on which God's entire spiritual household is built. It's the, the anchor of that house. Then, still quoting from Isaiah, Peter calls Jesus a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. There are two surefire ways to offend anybody on this earth who has not already been humbled in the presence of God. The first is to tell that person that he or she is a sinner, lost and dead in his sins, just like the rest of us, apart from Christ. The second surefire way to offend is to tell that person that the only way to God is Jesus Christ. And there is no other. So now you know how to offend people. It's a good thing everybody needs that in there. And their bag of tricks. The core value of our present culture can be summed up in one word. It begins with a T. Tolerance. Everybody gets to determine his or her own truth and nobody gets to determine anyone else's. Not even God Himself. Any hint of intolerance toward Whatever anyone else chooses to believe 
is the ultimate evil in our culture. With one glaring exception, of course. (laughs) It's considered highly commendable to be intolerant of exclusive truth. You can proclaim that absolutely anything is true with one exception. That there's something that actually qualifies as truth. Actual, objective, unchangeable truth to which every human being is equally accountable. There's really nothing particularly new about our culture's intolerance of exclusive truth. It's been around ever since Adam and Eve entertained the proposition that God's Word was just one alternative to be considered. When I was still pretty young in the Lord, one of my favorite college professors declared boldly in front of our whole class, there has to be more than one way to God. This was at Texas A&M and it was not a theology class. It was an abnormal psychology class. I realized later that the reason I loved that abnormal psychology class is because I'm so abnormal. But I loved that prof. I really He was a dear man. I asked him this question. I said, if God has actually spoken and told the world what's true about himself and about us instead of you know, leaving us to guess, and if he has told us that there is one way to God and Jesus Christ is that one way, then would I be representing God well if I said there are many ways? And he, he said, he stood for a minute and thought, he said, no, no, if that were true, if those things you just said were true, then you would not be representing God well. At that point, I quoted to him from memory two verses that leave no ambiguity on this question. The first is right here, John fourteen six. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The second, many of you know it, Acts 4.12, the words of Peter, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. And I asked him respectfully, I said, do those statements seem ambiguous? And I said, Prof, if God has spoken and if that's what He has said, about how people come to Him, then would I be rightly representing Him if I said there are many ways? And he said, no, you wouldn't. I still pray for that dear man. I don't know if I'll see him in heaven or not, but I still pray for him. The only thing I change about that conversation when I have it with people today is I remove the word if. Beloved, the world does not need to hear our hypotheticals. The world doesn't even need to hear what you and I believe. What the world needs to hear and believe is what Jesus actually declared. And He said, I am the way. See, there's no wiggle room here. The true revelation of God is inherently intolerant of men's guesswork about God. Truth is inherently intolerant of falsehood. No representative of Jesus Christ who was actually following God's lead ever said to lost men, Jesus 
is a way to God. And no faithful representative of Christ ever said to lost men, you might want to consider the possibility that Jesus is the way to God. No, here's what those who rightly represent Jesus have always said. God has spoken perfectly and personally in His Son, Jesus Christ. There's no guesswork here at all. None at all. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. Are you willing to say that to lost people without apology, without qualification? Because that's your mission. Beloved, people will call you a hate monger. They will call you intolerant. They will call you mean-spirited. They will call you closed-minded. They will call you unloving. But the very most loving thing you will ever do for another human being, a lost human being, is to tell them that. If anyone tells you that's unloving, you can just let that go right out the window. Because it's, it's a lie. Because you know Jesus, you know the way to the Father. But what you and I know, because we know Jesus, doesn't stop there. Jesus didn't come from heaven to earth only to be our way to dwell forever with the Father. He came to make known to us the God that we'll spend eternity with. Because you know Jesus, you know the Father Himself. This is astonishing. The second setup in this passage is in verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And what he's saying there, it's not a rebuke. He's saying, in the past, if you had met me you know, long ago, you would have known the Father. Now, because you do know me, you know the Father. In Acts 17, Paul was standing in an amphitheater in which the Athenian philosophers would, quote, spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. It reminds me of the old Unity Church of Unity bumper sticker, two question is the answer. Those philosophers loved to ponder the existence of divine beings and sacred beliefs. They even had a catch-all God to make sure they were covering all bases. They had a statue and it said, to an unknown God. They loved to ponder all the endless questions and propositions about truth and life and eternity that men could come up with. But you know what they didn't want? They didn't want the answer. Does that sound familiar? So what, how did Paul handle that? He said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. And then Paul said, What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And then he told them about Jesus. Jesus, the Lord and the judge of all mankind. He made it very clear that the one true God is not unknown. 
The second pinch hitter here for Peter is Philip. Philip, then after hearing this, from now on you you've seen him and you know him, the Father. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. It is enough. Remember those words. We'll come back to them uh, just real quickly. The word enough just means sufficient. See, Philip's saying, show us the Father, we'll be good to go. Just think of it. Even Moses didn't get to see God in all his glory. When when Moses said, God, show me your glory, God passed by in front of Moses and hid most of his glory from Moses' view so Moses wouldn't drop dead on the spot from seeing what nobody could, no human being could see. The priests didn't get to see the glory of God. The Shekinah glory that dwelled in the Holy of Holies, even on the Day of Atonement when the high priest came through the veil into the very presence of God, he had to have a bunch of incense smoke going up in front of his face so he couldn't get a good view. Otherwise, he would drop dead. So Philip says, well, Lord, you can show him to us. If we could just really see God the Father, we'd be set for life. Our troubled hearts would never be troubled again. Our questions would be answered. Our reluctance would be cured. We'd be ready to roll. With the setup in place and the challenge from the disciples out on the table, Jesus gives them the declaration that puts that challenge forever to rest. And he tells us everything that we need to know to know God. Not to know everything there is to know about God, but we won't do that for the rest of eternity. But everything that we need to know God as he intends for us to know him, Jesus tells us right here. He says, he who knows me knows the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Everything that you and I need to know God personally, intimately, and truly is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus said to Philip, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? And then in the concluding verses of this passage, Jesus asserts again what he's been telling his disciples over and over. My words are my Father's words. My works are my Father's works. I am in my Father and my Father is in me. He's saying what he said back in John 10 when he said, I and the Father are one. This is an astounding reality, beloved. We know God by looking at Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's no lacking in Him of the attributes, of the character of the ways of God. In verse 11, Jesus gives us the so what. 
It comes back around to the only command in this passage. In verses 1-11, through 11, there's just one command. Believe. Because you know Jesus, you know the way to the Father. Because you know Jesus, you know the Father Himself. You know, now trust. Trust the one you know. Verse 1, He said, let not your heart be troubled. He'll, say the, he'll use those words a little later. Uh, in verse 27, he'll say, let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. These men were troubled and fearful, and they were about to become a lot more so. He said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. See, that's the cure. That's the answer. Now he comes back to that command to drill it into the hearts of his disciples. He says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. These men had seen and heard the heavenly witness of the Father to the Son over and over for three years. In fact, they had heard it, they and their predecessors had heard it for 1,500 years through the prophets. Now Jesus brings that heavenly witness to its imminently practical impact on everyone who has heard it, and seen it. You have seen, and you know, now trust. I want to make sure we're not putting the cart before the horse. We need to recognize that the way these 11 men had come to see and know Jesus was by faith. Jesus told Nicodemus, no one sees the kingdom of God unless he's born again. So you don't see until God brings you life, gives you life in Christ through faith. These men had already given up much to follow Jesus because they believed that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They believed that He alone had words of eternal life. But brothers and sisters, trusting Jesus is not a once and done proposition. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, far better than I could have put it, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. How many of the minutes in Paul's life does that statement apply to? All of them. How many of the minutes in your life does that statement apply to? The life that I now live, that you now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and delivered Himself up for us. There's no other way to live the Christian life. You have to trust Him. I want you to listen one more time to Philip's words to Jesus, and Jesus' words to Philip in verses 8 and 9. I want you to listen as I read those two verses and substitute your name when you hear the, the name Philip. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Beloved, what would be enough for you? What would be enough for you? What would you have God do or say that would be sufficient for you to turn your heart away from the troubles and fears and endless 
questions and to fill your life instead with clarity and power and purpose and peace and joyful, confident action on behalf of Christ. What would be enough? There may be some in this room who've been in the Lord for decades, but have never gotten past their questions to actually reckon with Jesus' incomparable declarations about Himself. Some whose doubts and fears carry so much weight in their day-to-day thinking that God's precious and magnificent promises never even show up on the radar. So what would be enough for you? Would it be enough if God made Himself known to you in such a real and personal way that you actually came to know Him? Would it be enough if He actually proved to you the height and depth and length and breadth of His love that surpasses knowledge? His love for you? So that you couldn't deny that love. Would it be enough if He showed you the immeasurable lengths to which He would go to redeem you and forgive you and cleanse you and make you His own forever. Would that be enough? Beloved, He's already done all that. He's already done all that. God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were sinners and enemies We were lost. We were helpless. We were dead in our sins. We have nothing to offer to God. And He sent His Son. He sent His only begotten, beloved Son to the cross to die in our place. Is that enough? Christian, hear the words of Jesus to you. Have I been so long with you and you have not come to know Me? There's pain in that question. There is unspeakable, unimaginable pain that is mixed together with unfailing love for these men that He said He loved to the uttermost and for you. As Jesus spoke these words, He knew how fully, how perfectly, how unreservedly His Father was about to reveal His ways and His character to mankind the next day. The most all-encompassing display of God's character and of God's ways was just hours from happening. God has shown us all that we could possibly need to know about Himself and His Son. He has shown us the purity and perfection of His character in His Son. He has shown us His holy hatred of our selfish and hypocritical and unforgiving hearts in His Son. He has shown us the magnitude of the penalty that we owe to Him in His Son. He has proven His love for us in His Son. He paid all that could possibly be paid to forgive us and redeem us and make us His own in His Son. We have seen Him. We know Him because we know Jesus, the Christ, the perfect and divine Son of the living God. 
Is that enough for us? Is that enough for you? If it isn't, beloved, what more would you have God do? Here's how you and I actually live the Christian life. Here's how we actually do the works that God prepared beforehand for us to enter into. Here's how our troubled hearts become hearts that greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. Day by day. Here's how. Trust Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Trust the one who perfectly makes God personally known to you. Who makes God wonderfully accessible to you now and in eternity. We know why lost people stumble around in the dark, right? It's because they're in the dark. Beloved, the question that Jesus is presenting to you and to me here is, little children, why are you stumbling around in the light? You have seen you know. Now trust. And Jesus says to you, I will do greater things through you than this world saw when I was here. Dear Father, Jesus is more than enough for us. In Him we have seen You. We have come to know You. In Him we know the way that will bring us into Your presence for all eternity. In Him alone, we have all that we need to walk daily in confident, joyful, fruitful faith. Dear Father, humble us. Humble us. Always to trust the One that we know. We ask this, Father, with all our hearts in the name of of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.